the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax, tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. All right, guys, we are glad that you're here, and this is the final week um, in our series, The Bible Doesn't Say That. And I think it's been pretty fun. It's been a pretty fun series, hasn't it? What we're doing is, is we're taking um, popular phrases that have somehow um, made their way in our thoughts and minds to be in the scriptures, and they've been given the same authority um, as the Bible, and we've come to find out that that's, that's not true. And um, one of the things I'm excited about is next week... Uh, we will begin a new series through the book of Psalms. And so what we do um, every summer here at Westside for the past like three years is in the summer we sort of pause everything and then just go through the Psalms. We've done the Psalms of Ascent and really taken time to study these. And I have a personal goal to maybe preach through all of the Psalms which is going to be a lot, so we better get going, right? And so um, it's going to be a great series and a great time. Some of the um, most profound theology and some of the greatest verses in the Bible that have held people together and got them through their lives in dark times has come from the book of Psalms. And so I'm so excited about that. We will start that next week. But this week, um, I, I, I must confess that as we've gone through this series, the Bible doesn't say that. We've said that there's been five types of people when it comes to the scriptures. And, and we said that this has sort of been the outline and the goal for us. That there are those who outright um, reject the Bible, don't believe that it's God's word, don't believe anything about it. There are those who are around it constantly through churches or family members or this, that, and the other. There are those who are under it, who, like right now, listening to preaching, um, listening to podcasts, being under the word of God. And there are those who are in it, who are actually reading the Bible and studying the scriptures. And, and we've said predominantly in our area of Butler County, probably the most popular category is those who are around it. Um, whether it be a grandmother or a grandfather, you're just sort of around the Bible, maybe Christmas and Easter, this, that, and the other. And, and we said that a lot of us think that the goal is, is to be this category, those who are in it, that that's sort of the end game, that, that if I can read my Bible and study my Bible on a regular basis, that that is the goal of discipleship. But we said that there's a fifth category that actually the scriptures move us to, and it is those who have the Bible in them. Uh, we used the illustration last week of a rock in a river. That, that rock has been there for hundreds of years, but you take that rock out of the water and you crack it open and it is bone dry, that no water has got in that rock. And we said that it is a great burden in the scriptures and Jesus warns. Um, Jesus' strongest words to people in the Gospels 
is not to the adulterers, the tax collectors, the murderers, and the prostitutes. Jesus' strongest words to people in the Bible were people who went to church every single Sunday. And he said that his great fear was is that they would be people who study and search the scriptures for life, but don't realize that the scriptures talk about him. And so we want to be a people who have the Bible in us. And when we have the Bible in us, we can spot these sort of popular phrases and realize, wait, 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 that's, that's not in the Bible. And then what we realized last week with the idea that God will never give you more than you can handle is that when we have these false statements, what it actually does is it, it creates a false view of God. And so then when suffering or trials enter into our life, Maybe we become bitter and, and we question God. And in that reality is, is we had a false view of God because we believed a false statement about God. But I must confess that, that this week is by far the hardest of all of the statements. And, and there's a reason why. Um, I, I learned a new word this week. And um, it's one that through the past couple of years, because of the political climate, psychologists have actually coined a new phrase. And the phrase is the word paltering, P-A-L-T-E-R-I-N-G. Paltering is the act of using truthful facts to deceive someone. You're like, wait. Can that happen? Uh, yes, actually, children do it all the time, right? Um, and politicians actually do this more than anybody that we know. So paltering, um, for, you know, for example, let's say your mom asks, are you done with your homework? And you respond with, I'm writing an essay about Jesus. Um, I'm sorry, I asked if you were done with your homework, right? See, see, there's not a direct answer, but what you used is, you used a true statement, I'm writing an essay about Jesus, as your statement to sort of deceive someone into something else. Now, our phrase this week is difficult because there's actually a little grain of truth that is in it. Now, the sentence in and of itself is nowhere in the Bible. There is no chapter and verse to our sentence, but there's a little bit of truth in it. But I'm afraid that that little bit of truth, when it's drawn out to its proper theological conclusion in the scriptures, can actually lead us astray. And so are we ready for our last week and for our sentence? The phrase this week is this, you know, the Bible says... God helps those who help themselves, right? Just by a show of hands. Have you heard this sentence before? You heard this before? Yeah. Maybe just by another confession, we've maybe said this sentence before, right? Some of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've actually probably at some point when I was younger taught this very sentence before, but there, it's not in the Bible in regards to chapter and verse that we can turn to Hezekiah and say, see right there, God helps those who help themselves. When you study this phrase, uh, just a fun little history for you, um, it actually comes first and foremost in history 
through Aesop's fables. Do you guys remember that little book of sort of like Greek uh, mythology and proverbs and sentences? And the phrase comes from a scene in Aesop's fables when a man who has a wagon and the wheel gets stuck in the mud and Hercules comes down. Remember Hercules, Hercules, right? That's Nutty Professor. That's a different movie. Sorry, right? Um, Hercules comes down and asks if he needs help. And long story short, the gods help those who help themselves. That's as early as the phrase goes back, but by far the person that made it the most popular is one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. And in that poor Richard's almanac that he had, he's the one who coined the phrase to make it the most popular, that God helps those who help themselves. He actually borrowed it from another guy, Algernon Sidney, who used it in some writing of political discourse. But this week, my heart was broken. That as I chased this sentence down, Matthew Henry popped up before me. And... I found what they said that Matthew Henry, who was a Bible scholar, theologian, um, at one point in people's homes in America, there was a King James Bible, Pilgrim's, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and Matthew Henry's commentary on the entire Bible. You could find that in any home in America. But they said that Matthew Henry actually said this sentence, God helps those who help themselves, in his commentary on the Bible. And I about fell out in my chair. I was like, no, not Matthew Henry. I love that guy. And I was like, you know what? I'll bet you they don't have his book. So I went to my library and got Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. And I went to the commentary in Joshua chapter 5, page 22 on volume 2, and thought, surely it's not in there. And to my dismay... Matthew Henry says, commenting on verse 13, note, God will help those that help themselves. The law helps or the law successes those who watch, not those who sleep. Joshua was in his post as a general when God came and made known to him his promises. And I thought, well, now we're in a predicament. A Bible scholar that I use every week actually uses this sentence. Now, the grain of truth that is in this sentence and why I believe Matthew Henry used it in his commentary is we've learned in this series context is king, right? So you can't just use a Bible verse out of its context. You need to know the verses before it, the verses after it, what book of the Bible is it in. And Matthew Henry's um, commenting in the book of Joshua about the walls of Jericho. Do you guys remember that in Sunday school class when you had the sugar-free Kool-Aid and the dry wafer crackers, right? So God promised Israel this land. And he promised, God said, that he would defeat their enemies. And their enemies were so much greater than them. And all Israel had to do was to march around the city of Jericho. And the walls of that city would come tumbling down. Now, question. If Joshua and the people of Israel had not marched around the city, would the walls have fallen? I don't know. I mean, God is going to do what God is going to do. But what Matthew Henry is saying is God was partnering with the people of Israel. That God uses 
people. So when the people of Israel stepped out in obedience, God met them there in that moment of obedience. You see, there is a grain of truth in this sentence. But I think what we have to do to understand it rightly is that we have to put it in two categories in our context of God helps those who help themselves. The first and foremost is when it comes to our salvation, listen to me, when it comes to our salvation, the sentence God helps those who help themselves is, I would, this is a strong sentence, is anti-Christ. It is anti-Bible. When it comes to our salvation, God does not help those who help themselves. Listen, God saves the helpless. That is the good news of the Bible. That the good news is, is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to being made right with God and having a right relationship with him, there is nothing, and please let me repeat, there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to make God love us anymore. That the good news is that Jesus Christ has done that on our behalf. And I know what you're saying, preacher, do you have some Bible verses to back that up? Well, actually, I do. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, just says it uh, in the New American Standard Version like this. For while we were still helpless... Um, any questions, right? I mean, there it is right there. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That this is the good news. Or how about this in Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace that you have been saved through faith, this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Listen, oftentimes when I meet with people, um, I learned uh, to ask this pastoral question through an old dead theologian by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones would ask his congregants when they would come in for a counseling session, he would ask them just very bluntly and very directly, are you a Christian? Are you a, a, a Christian? And he said he would watch them squirm sort of in the chair right there. And they would answer it a number of ways. Most common one would be, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a Christian. And then he would walk through the glorious truths of the Bible. But he would always get this answer. And I've gotten this answer before too. Are you a Christian? And someone responds with this answer. I'm trying. I'm trying. And he said the answer, when they would answer that way, it would reveal more about their theology and their understanding of God than any other answer. Because you see, a lot of us view our relationship with God almost like a ladder. That when it starts out that we're at the very bottom of this ladder. But hopefully, maybe, man, you know, that if I stop cursing, and if I stop doing this, and if I can just get a grip on this, and if I don't do this, and if I do this, and I do these things, then my relationship with God, God's at the top of the ladder, then I can have that relationship with God. 
And please let me tell you, the story of the Bible, the good news of the Bible is not that we work our way up this ladder and God is at the top of this ladder and he's wanting a relationship with you. And I mean, I remember going to youth camps and guys just begging and everybody's crying that last night of youth camp, right? Everybody's getting saved. Everybody's breaking up with their boyfriend and girlfriend, right? It's not you. I just want a closer relationship with God, right? It's all of this stuff. And, and, and the speaker is saying, God wants a relationship with you. And you just got this guilt and this shame. And he's at the top of the ladder. And, and he just wants this relationship. Listen, that is not good news. That is horrible news. For you to have to work your way. The good news of the Bible is that God came down from the ladder is that God in the person of Jesus Christ, it was our call to worship today, that the word became flesh, that Jesus Christ steps out of heaven. Listen, God does not meet us halfway. That is not good news. It is not that we sort of get our life together, get our marriage together, get this addiction a little bit under control, and then God works in our life. The good news of the Bible is that while we were helpless, broken, bankrupt, and in rebellion against God, that God chased us down. That's the good news. And then the scriptures go on to teach Jesus in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So listen, the sentence, God helps those who help themselves, number one, is nowhere in the Bible. There's no chapter and verse for that. And when it comes to our salvation and our relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ, God does not help those who help themselves. God saves the helpless. But I love what one commentator said. Jesus said, apart from me, that you can do nothing. But if we do nothing, we will also be apart from Jesus. That's a good sentence. That Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if we do nothing, we will also be apart from Jesus. So enter the second category. When it comes to our growth and our good works, we do not live a passive life, but we live a partnered life with God. That's the good news, is that God actually uses people, that God uses our broken attempts of our good works and our growth. I know what you're saying, man. Jason, I need some more Bible verses for that. Well, listen, let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis when God creates everything. I love this. The first three chapters of Genesis are probably my favorite in all of the Bible. Now, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. Now, here it is. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. One of the commands that God gives our first parents, Adam and Eve, um, apart from be fruitful and multiply, and that's our favorite command. We love to obey here at Westside, all these babies running around, right? But God tells them, listen, have dominion over my creation. But what God did not do in his creation is God did not plow a field get all the weeds out, plant seed, cause the sunshine and water, and do all of that, and then pick the fruit and do everything. What God did is he created an environment that man would partner with him 
to cultivate the ground. Listen, this is profound in our theology. And some of us need to understand work. This is just going to ruin your Sunday. I'm so sorry, but this is going to ruin your Sunday. Work was actually a part of God's plan before sin entered into the story. I know it's a wah, 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 right? But here's the change. Here's what changes is that now we work literally for our survival by the sweat of your brow, that the thorns and that this earth is going to fight back and you're going to fight Every time you mow your lawn, you just need to curse, right? I mean, no, I'm sorry, not curse. But you remember the curse that the ground fights back at you. And so listen, it was always a part of God's plan that man would partner with him. Also, when it comes to our spiritual growth and our maturity in Christ, the Apostle Paul says to a church in Corinth, some of you have been Christians for years but you're still drinking milk like babies whenever you should be eating meat. In translation, the Apostle Paul says, it's time for some of you to grow up. It's time for some of you to grow up. That listen, that when it comes to reading our Bible and praying that there are disciplines in the Christian life that we have to partake in ourselves. But God is the initiator and we are the responders. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle Paul calls us fellow workers with God. I mean, do you know the profound implications of that little sentence? That some of us right now are praying for that conflict in our family. Praying. And especially on days like today, holidays, organizing, getting it together, doing all of that. Those conflicts um, have ways of revealing themselves on days like today. And we're praying, God, my relationship with, you know, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, or this, that, and the other. We're praying, God, do something. God, do something in our family. And sometimes I wonder that if God is not, if he could just speak audibly to us, when we say, God, I'm just asking you to fix this, for God to speak back to us and go funny, because I was wondering when you were going to have that conversation with them. You see, God uses people, that we are fellow workers with God, that yes, God initiates and God starts, but when it comes to our good works and our growth, that it's partnership with God. One last Bible verse, James chapter 2. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Ladies, you know this book very well. You studied this. That, that the great argument was, is are we made right with God through faith, which is a gift, that everything that Jesus has done, or are we made right with God by works? Is there something that we do? And listen, some of us grew up in theological backgrounds and denominations that preached grace, but the reality was is, I mean, you know, in order to be made right with God, you, you better get baptized, you better be speaking in tongues, you better do X, Y, or Z, and please listen to me. The only requirement for salvation is your sin that put Jesus on the cross. That is the only requirement for salvation. But James says... Listen, there's not an argument with faith and works. The answer is faith works. Faith works. So some of us, 
are asking God to give us a new job or to do something financially for us. And so here's what we do in the morning. We pray and we beg God to provide. And then what we do is we go out the rest of the day and fill out job applications and resumes and we work and we do everything we can in our strength that day. And then at bed, we, uh, at night, we lay our head down in bed realizing that God is also working for us. Listen, we see this tension all through the scripture. Remember Nehemiah, when the wall in the city has fallen down. Nehemiah prays and it says, Nehemiah prayed and said, God will build this wall. And the very next verse, it says, so they grabbed bricks and begin to build the wall. Because listen, God partners with us in this. But I think there's still a tension here. I think really, the more and more I thought about it, and the more and more I prayed about that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Remember paltering? A truthful phrase that is used in the end actually to lead us to an untrue conclusion. When I thought about how that phrase is used, God helps those who helps, them, who helps themselves, it's never really used in a grace-filled, loving manner. Most of the time, it is used in a superior, prideful, looking down, well, they need to, and their problem is, and what they need to do is, sort of mindset. And you see, I think there's a tension that's underneath all of it. And it's a tension that we have to understand. And it's this. We need to know the difference in effort and earning. That's the difference. You see, effort is what we've been talking about. Is that God empowers our effort as human beings. Like, you know, I get asked all the time when God does great stuff through, um, you know, like Easter at the Coliseum or Easter at the Rogers. I would have pastors call and go, hey, we're thinking about doing a community-wide Easter event like that. Tell me how you did that. And then finally, I kind of just got agitated one day and was like, well, what you do is you get the best volunteers and you kill yourself. Am I lying, right? And then what you do is you pray and you beg God to fill that place. It's effort. God empowers our effort. But please listen to me. If there is anything that God is opposed to in the scriptures, it is earning. And there's a quote by a theologian by the name of Dallas Willard. Um, Dallas Willard's a profound theologian who wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and I would highly recommend it to you. It is his study on the Sermon on the Mount. Please listen to this quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but listen, it's my entire sermon. When it comes to this idea that God helps those who help themselves, we know that when it comes to our salvation, that statement is anti-Christ. That is anti-Bible. But when it comes to our efforts, God does partner and empower us with our efforts. But listen to what Dallas Willard says. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is an attitude. 
You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any other mere human being, looked back on what had happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it is his grace toward me that did not prove in vain, but I labored and worked harder more than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Listen, that's the key. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And I think, pastorally, when it comes to the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, that is an attitude of earning. You see, what we're talking about is the difference between religion and a relationship. Um, here's, let's break it down even more. Earning says, look at all that I've done for God. God owes me. I mean, I volunteered, I did this, I did that. Effort says, look at all that God's done for me. I just want to be a good steward. Earning says, if I obey, then I have to be accepted. Effort says, in Jesus, I'm accepted and forgiven, therefore, I'm free to obey. Do you see the difference in this? Listen, this is a profound difference. And I believe that God in his sovereignty, that we would have this at the end of this series to wrap this up. Because I believe that the pervasive mindset in Butler County and a majority of people who think they are Christians, but according to the Bible are not, have actually lived a life of earning. And do you know what reveals that more than anything else? Suffering. Suffering. When something like cancer or car wreck or tragedy enters into your world and you weren't planning for it and it throws all of your plans out of whack and immediately we shake our fist and say, why would you do this to me? Look at all that I've done. Why my family? Look at what we've done. We've tried. We've done all of this. Now, enter into the parable that Jesus tells. This is literally the mindset that Jesus is combating. And the key to the entire parable is found in verse 9. It says it right before he even gets into the parable. He also told this parable. What a parable is, some of us didn't grow up in church. What a parable is, is it's a story. It's a heavenly story um, that proves sort of an earthly point, right? So what Jesus does is that he takes an earthly illustration to show you what the kingdom of God is like. And he tells this story and he compares and he contrasts a Pharisee and a tax collector. Listen. To a Pharisee, I mean, this is it. If you would have surveyed the town and you're like, hey, who in this town's going to heaven? Number one, they would have said, well, the Pharisees. Pharisees are going to heaven. They were the theologically conservative. They had memorized books of the Bible. They did all of this stuff. They gave a certain amount of money. They did all of these things. And if you would have surveyed the town and said, hey, who's far away from God? Who does not have a right relationship with God? Everybody would have said the tax collector. 
Because the tax collector lied and cheated and stole from people. And Jesus flips it on its head. And he says the reason why. Look at verse 9. Why does he tell this parable? To some, here's the key, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Listen, here's the key. What does it look like to live a life of earning? How can you know if you're living a life of earning? Two things. The first one is this, that you trust in your own performance and abilities. So, on days maybe when you read the Bible and you pray, you walk maybe with your head a little bit higher, not because of the good news that you've read, but because you know that that little running anxiety in the back of your mind, like, well, I read my Bible and I prayed today, so if I die in a car wreck, I know I'll go to heaven. Right? Oh, you guys don't have those thoughts, right? Like, man, like tonight, if I die in my sleep and before I wake up, am I going to be able to get to heaven? Because I had that argument with that. But what you trust in is what you've done. And then the second thing is this, is that you despise those who don't work as hard as you. That's what it says, that you treat other people with contempt. I mean, look at what the tax collector does. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that church service? Like somebody praying, going, God, I'm so glad I'm not like Bill. Bill's like, what in the world is going, right? And what you find yourself saying is, as you look at these people going, get your act together, man. Don't hit me with the, oh, I'm so busy. And oh my, look at my life. Look at what all I'm juggling. Look at what all I'm doing. Do you know what I got done before 9 a.m. today and you're telling me you couldn't get the one thing done? Get your life in order, man. What are you doing? You're saying, wow, Jason, you really seem to have an insight on that. I'm just telling you what I struggle with as well. Listen, there are days where I think, because maybe I preached a certain way, that God's more pleased with me than if I didn't. I'm telling you what I struggle with in my own life, in my own performance. So how can we really examine our life and know if we're really dealing with this? Well, I just want to ask a few questions in closing, and it's these. I just want to look at the Pharisee and ask these four questions. The first one is this. Do I care more about my appearance and my reputation than I do my heart? So Jesus says a Pharisee, right? And it says, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. So what the Pharisees did is they did everything out in the open. They did everything out in the open. They prayed out in the open. They gave their money out in the open. They um, helped people out in the open because they wanted recognition. They wanted a good reputation. So... Um, would you still do good works and give and serve and do things if nobody ever knew about it? Because a Pharisee wouldn't. A Pharisee wants recognition. 
and an applause for that. The second thing is this. Um, do I desire positions of prominence? You can't really see it in the text, but notice verse 11. Look at your Bibles. It's kind of an awkward phrase, right? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed. And my Bible has a little footnote, number one, and if you drop down, it says standing, prayed to himself. What it really means in the original language is he walked up to the front and stood. So it's not like that he stood by himself. It's like, I mean, it's like, um, do you know Conor McGregor? Do you know Conor McGregor? Do you know the McGregor swag, like how he has? That's what the Pharisee did. That's what the Pharisee did in the temple. Walked up and got his place and position and then began to pray. He desired a position of prominence. Do you know what's so shocking to me? It's always so shocking to me um, when people want to serve only when decisions need to be made. Like, I don't see them around when we need a mop or somebody in the nursery, but when it comes to approving the budget, all of a sudden they want to get involved. You see, that's a desiring a position of performance, of wanting to have that authority. And listen, you never put someone in a position of authority who can't be under authority. You're never going to be in authority unless you can first learn to be under authority. That's what Jesus teaches about the very kingdom of God. And then the third question is this, do I look down on and judge other people? I mean, that's exactly what the Pharisee did. The Pharisee looked down on the tax collector and said, God, I'm glad I'm not like, we have a phrase here at Westside, those people, you know? So the next time that you're checking out in line and you see somebody paying with a certain form of payment and then it rises up in your heart because you worked all week for this, that, or the other. Listen, I'm not saying that that other thing's right or this, that, and the other. I'm asking about you. Don't deflect and run this thing away and go, yeah, but what about? I'm talking about our heart. And then the last thing is this. Do you keep score? I mean, look at how many times he mentions the word I. I thank you. I am not like. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. I get. I, I, I. In these short verses, he uses I five times. Hey, um, do you know a great way to kill your marriage and your relationships? Keep score. Well, I did this, so then you need to do this. Because you didn't do this, then I'm going to withhold this from you. Because you said this, now I'm going to withhold this. Because what you need to do is you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to meet this here. And you keep score. And what you do is you hold up and say, I'm this good. This is what makes me right. So what's the key to it all? Look at the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, here's the key. The Bible does not teach or say that God helps those who help themselves. The Bible says that God helps the humble. That's the whole point of the parable. And I fear that when we say God helps those who help themselves, we say it from a place of superiority. I love what James says. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Question, what if the very thing that you find yourself fighting against right now and you feel exhausted? Listen, what if it's actually God? Because it says that God opposes the proud. And what God is doing is this situation or this circumstance, God is humbling you. And he's making you become more and more and more and more dependent on him until that moment when you can be like the tax collector and all you can say in your prayer is this, God, have mercy on me. I need you because apart from you, I can do nothing. So Westside, I want you to stand to your feet and I want us today to close with a specific prayer. I want us to ask ourselves, and am I somebody who lives a life based on earning or somebody who's living a life, life by grace-driven effort? Westside, let us lift our voices and pray this prayer out loud together. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have viewed you wrongly. I confess that at times I have tried to earn your favor in my life by my good works. I confess all the wrong that I have done and turn to embrace Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I confess that I cannot change myself. I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would renew my mind, soften my heart, and strengthen my hands for the work of your kingdom. I receive by faith the grace that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so grateful for this series, grateful to have a correct view of you. It's good news. The gospel is good news. And today, so many of us came in here with heavy burdens tied around our neck, with a week that is daunting before us, with relationships and tasks and so many things. God, I pray against the attitude of earning that if we do this, then you will do this. God, the one word to sum up this life is grace, an unearned gift from an unobligated giver that you have given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, that there's nothing that we could do that would make you love us more or love us less. God, we know that in our mind, but may that drop down in our hearts today. Holy Spirit, comfort those who need comforting, those who need their heads lifted, and to hear the beautiful words that you are my son, you are my daughter, and I am well pleased with you. God, convict those of us who need convicting. Those of us who this week have lived a life of earning and comparison and contempt. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, you have the